As a church, we've been making our way through the gospel of Luke. And I hope that if you've been going through this with us, you've had an opportunity to read it for yourself. It's one thing when you come to church and you believe that whatever the pastor tells you is in the Bible is actually in the Bible. But it's even better when you put the word in your own self. Um, You don't let me read it for you. You read it for yourself. And so that's one of the the big reasons that we've been trying to go through it this way is giving you an opportunity to read it for yourself, process it yourself, get it into your heads and into your hearts. And as we've been going through um, this reading plan, going along um, through the Gospel of Luke, we come up to three chapters here today. 11, 12, 13, 14, I guess that's four chapters. Um, Luke 11 to 14, where we're gonna continue to see this theme that we've been seeing throughout the Gospel of Luke, which is that Jesus came to seek and to save. I think by three, four weeks into it at this point, you probably know that part, right? Jesus came to seek and to save. When you're done with Luke for years to come, When you think back to the gospel of Luke, you will remember, because I've said it so many times to you, that Jesus came to seek and to save. He came to seek those who were lost and provide salvation for them, okay? Um, And as we saw last week, his plan was to multiply his ministry by inviting us to join him in the work. And this isn't so that we can just earn our salvation, Jesus doesn't say, yeah, I'm going to set this up. I'm going to save people, but I'm going to let you come along and work along inside. And eventually you'll build up enough, you know, credits from working with me that I'm going to let you into heaven. No, it's not about that. We know that he came and, and brought salvation to us freely. It's not that, but it's so that we get the privilege of experiencing God's transformation of the world as at first hand. And we also learned last week that we're not supposed to set out on that journey uh, working with Jesus under our own power and with our own resources. Usually when we're given direction to go do something, we think about, okay, well, what do I have to accomplish that task? Maybe it's at work and you think, all right, has my education prepared me to do this thing? Have I got the training I need to do this? Maybe it's at home and you have to figure it out. Hey, I've got to count, count this out. Do I have the stuff that I need to do this project? What, what is it that I, I have? You know, we look to our natural abilities. But what we've learned and what we learned last week was that we start not with what we naturally have. We actually are to start with our relationship with Jesus and with the resources that he provides. Remember last week, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus took a couple loaves of bread, a couple fish, and he broke that with the resources of heaven and multiplied it to feed over 5,000 people. None of us on our own, the disciples found out this the hard way. They're like, what can we do? Can we go buy the food to feed all these people? There's no way, we don't have the natural resources. But Jesus just told us that we are supposed to provide for these people. Ah, But Jesus was teaching us. He was giving us that example to say, no, no, no. I'm going to call you to work. I'm going to call you to do these things, but it's not going to be out of your resources. It's going to be out of the resources that I provide for you. And that's exciting. And being involved in the work of Jesus is a great privilege. But here's what we also find out as soon as we start doing it. It's not always easy. And it's not always rewarding. 
We hear that message. We say, okay, God's called us to work with him on the earth, bringing salvation to others, to do what he did, to seek those who are lost. But that's sometimes scary. That's sometimes hard. We're sometimes rejected. I've got a lot of other things going on. This is one more thing piling on. Oh my gosh, what can I do? This isn't easy. In fact, what we find out is that there are costs associated with following Jesus. And he teaches us to consider the cost before we agree to follow him. And that's the focus of the message that we're going to look at um, through these, these chapters today. The, the message this morning is entitled, Counting the Cost. Counting the Cost. So, as we're going through here, we start in Luke chapter 11. And in chapter 11, it begins with the Lord's Prayer. So if you're reading along, you're probably, probably like me, you come across that, you're like, oh, I know this part. <laughs> the Lord's Prayer. When I was a little boy, my mom taught me two big memory verses, sections of scripture that I memorized as a little kid. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and the Lord's Prayer. And for many of you, even from small, small little kids, I couldn't even read yet, but I could quote for you the Lord's Prayer and Psalm 23. And the Lord's Prayer is something that we, we know very well. It gives us a beautiful glimpse into Jesus' focus on his Father's will and his Father's way. All right, even there in that prayer, he's teaching us to not look to our own will and our own way, but to look to the resources of heaven, to look to the Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Remember all this, right? He's, he's having us look there. And when we see, we study Jesus's life, we clearly see that that focus on the Father's will and the Father's way was critical to allow him to accomplish the things that he came to accomplish. Because there were great personal costs to Jesus to come and do what he did. Have you thought about that before? The fact that not only does Jesus call us to bear some of the cost, he paid a great cost to come and do what he did. Philippians chapter two, this is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, because Jesus is God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to hold on to, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Do you realize how big of a deal that is? Jesus was God, comfortably in heaven with the rest of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, right? He was God. But what we find out from Scripture is that Jesus chose to empty himself, and this is mysterious and we won't figure it all out today. He emptied himself of his Godness to become human to be born as a human. That alone is a massive cost. But not only did he empty himself, he left the perfection of heaven, the perfect community that he had within himself of the Father, Son, and Spirit to come here to earth and dwell in the brokenness of humanity. Not only that, he was even had to deal with being rejected by his own creation. And that's what we see as chapter 11 goes on. Jesus paid a great cost to be here. 
And, and he wasn't even thanked for it in many, many places. Ultimately, we know that it would cost him his life. And that's what we see as, we, as you went through Luke chapter 11, as you're reading through it. We've, we've been following the religious leaders through this gospel. And initially, the religious leaders who had been waiting, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, they had been waiting for a Messiah. And their entire religion was set up in such a way with all of the, the, the words of the prophets and, and all that they had heard all along where God made these promises to the people of Israel over and over and over and again where he said, I'm going to send you a savior, a Messiah, one who would come and make all things right. And they had this, this imagination of who, what this Messiah would be like, this great savior that would come and make all things right and raise them up politically to become the most powerful nation in the world, that he would crush all their adversaries, that they would, they would prosper in every way, financially and with health, and it would be this incredible thing. And they had this imagination of this is what the Messiah would be like. And so when Jesus appears on the scene and begins doing radical things, miraculous things, the people, as they're seeing this, they're like, whoa, could this be? Is this the Messiah? And the religious leaders were no different. Initially, they were like, could this actually be the Messiah? Is this a prophet? He's a healer. He's a miracle worker. Could this be the one that God has promised? But as time has gone on, that curiosity began to switch a little bit. And by chapter 11, we see that the, the curiosity has given way to jealousy and hatred. And in verses 53 and 54 there in Luke 11, if you're following along, it says that the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard, lying in wait for him. Not like what we saw a couple of weeks ago with Simon, who was a Pharisee who invited Jesus over to his house, remember? And then there was the surprise visit from the woman and he had that whole dialogue. Simon was a Pharisee. Simon was one of those that was trying to figure out, who is this Jesus guy? What's he all about? What's he teaching? No longer. Now, it's not just a curiosity of, oh, we want to get to know the guy. No, no, no. Now it says they're lying in wait for him. They're, they're, they're wanting to at least shut him up, put him somewhere else, close down his ministry, something. And ultimately, we see it's going to eventually lead to, to murder. And some began making accusations against Jesus, saying that his glorious power was from hell. If you read that chapter, you'll remember that, that he wasn't from God, but he was from the devil. That's how he had so much power. And at this point, Jesus had to correct them and also had to call them out for their hypocrisy and inconsistency. Now, when we think about that, if we were putting ourselves in, in Jesus's place there, if that sort of reception happened to us, we might've just backed down and said, you know what? This really isn't worth it. Here I am. I came to earth to try to bless these people. I'm healing the sick. I'm casting out demons. I'm pre preaching a, a message of good news for all the people. And this is the kind of treatment I get. For us, we might've been like, well, forget those people. I'm not gonna tell them anything else. That's the last miracle I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna go do my own thing and, and, and step aside. But that's not what Jesus did. And in chapter 12, um, and, and remember what I'm going to do here today. I'm going to look at chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14, kind of an overview. It's going to be quick, and then we're going to focus in on one section. And in chapter 12, Jesus begins to teach the fact that there's real, real costs involved in following him. And it's not just for him. He wouldn't be the only one to be rejected. The followers of Jesus, his disciples, and those that would come after us, that there's going to be cost involved for us as well. 
And he was telling his followers to be aware that that is true, but also not to fear. And and Jesus taught there that God values us. Maybe you need to hear that today and be reminded of that today. God values you, individually you, not just you as humanity. Sometimes we, we hear John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And we think, oh yeah, God loves people as like a group, as a population, which is true. But also God loves you individually, personally. He loves you and he cares for you. And Jesus taught that's the side you want to be on. You want to be on the side of the father. In Luke 12, four to seven, he says this. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, other people. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Who is that? God and God alone. Yes, I tell you, fear him, fear God. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? That was a cheap bird for sale in their markets. And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus says, I care about every one of you. I know how many hairs are on your head for lots and for the little, (laughs) wherever you find yourself. And when we feel the pressure of the world around us, when we feel that rejection, when we feel that, that happening, it's natural that we want to withdraw and protect ourselves. All right? You show up at work or you show up at school or wherever it is that you go and all of a sudden people turn on you. You want to defend yourself or you want to crawl under a blanket and go home or something. You want to protect yourself. That's natural when we experience that. And, and a lot of times we, what we'll do is we'll just say, you know what, I'm going to just figure out a, a different way of doing life. I don't need these people. I don't want to deal with these people. I, 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 yeah, Jesus may have called me to the lost, but it sure is a lot easier if I just don't even deal with them. I'd like to just step out for a while. And Jesus tells a specific story about that in, in ch- chapter 12. He tells a story about a rich man starting there in, in uh, chapter 12, verse 16. And what the, the, the way the story goes is that the, the rich man has been working his whole life. He's been saving up uh, all of his money. He's built this empire, so to speak. And what he says is, he says, soul, well, I'll read it to you. He says there in Luke 12, 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. And what does he say? Now, this is what I should do then. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What the rich man says is, I don't want to deal with any of this other stuff. I don't want to work. I don't need to work. I've set, set myself up. I've got a huge nest egg here. I can just put it on cruise control. And I'm not attacking the, the American retirement mindset, but this is what Jesus is attacking. What he's saying is, hey, be careful because you don't really know what is all involved in your life and what's involved in this. And, and here, I mean, when I look at that, when I say, hey, you got ample goods laid up, relax, eat, drink, marry, be merry, that sounds great to me. I can just focus on me and do my thing and I don't have to worry about anything else. But Jesus calls us beyond ourselves. This is an important point. Jesus calls us beyond ourselves. There is a time 
for rest and fun and relaxation. And I'm not attacking any of you who are on retirement already or have a retirement plan in mind. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. There is a, a time and place, but it's not God's ultimate purpose for this life. Jesus has not said, I just hope that someday you can make it to retirement because then, whoo, I've done what I needed to do in your life. You got to retire. Fantastic. That's not it. Jesus didn't live on earth with that goal and neither should we. And that's why Jesus goes on there in that story in Luke chapter 12, verse 20. Here's what happens. After that man says this, I'll just relax, eat, drink, and be merry. It says this, but God said to him, fool. Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? It doesn't even really matter. It won't be yours because you're gonna be dead. But listen, here's, here's the real key in this. He says, so is the one, being a fool, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus didn't say, hey, you can never retire. But what he's saying is make sure you know what you're doing with the things you have and why you've been put on this planet. The ultimate goal, the American dream of retirement and cruising the country in an RV may or may not be the dream that God has for you in your life. So you've got to make sure that you've been rich toward God and you're keeping an eye on what God has for you. Because here's really what Jesus is saying. That seems like a high, oh, that's, that's, that's the ultimate, if I can just get to there. What Jesus says is Jesus says it's foolish to set our sights so low. He says if all you're going to do is set your sights on yourself and, and taking care of you and doing your thing, he says you've got your sights way, way too low. Because by embracing some of those things, the me, the mine, the I want this, I need that, By embracing those things, you have to forego others. And as you invest in some areas, you know that, well, you've got limited resources, then you're going to have to ignore other things so you can invest them over here. And what Jesus teaches is that the kingdom of God is worth sacrificing the kingdom of earth for. Okay? The kingdom of God is worth sacrificing the kingdom of earth for. And that can seem like a major risk. And so because it's a major risk... I think it is, uh, it's good and right that Jesus immediately after that, after he tells that story, he starts talking about anxiety. He starts talking about worry. He starts talking about the things that make us a little uncomfortable when we think about the big picture of our lives. And, and all of us, I'll just tell you this right now, all of us, even the most carefree among us, have some worries in life. And for some of you who are are, are wired a little differently, you've got a lot of worries in your life. Uh, If you study anything that's happening in sociology today, what we find right now is that our whole society is buried under mental health issues. You see that term being thrown around a lot. What is it all hinging on? It's hinging on worry. It's hinging on fear anxiety, all those things are are heavy weighing upon us. And the struggle, the struggle and the battle to understand where we fit in life and what we're supposed to do in our life, that creates anxiety in us. Personally, I've struggled with anxiety in the past, but found great freedom from it through Jesus. But anxiety comes from uncertainty and fear about our place in this world. 
And, and Jesus addresses that. He says, I understand. This is where it comes from. It's a fear about your place in the world. But Jesus explains it and calls us beyond it. So if you're reading along in this passage and you struggle especially with anxiety, I'll just address you guys today. If there's any of you here, if you haven't read this yet, mark it, write it down. Because chapter 12, verses 22 to 34 is about the best passage in the whole Bible to, to get you through anxiety and to help you understand Jesus's perspective on this. All right, Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 34. We're not gonna read it here today, but it's an excellent passage to meditate on if you struggle with this. Because Jesus shifts our eyes off of ourselves and onto him. And that's what he, he teaches us. He says, don't let those stresses and worries take your eyes off of eternity because God has an eternal kingdom in mind for you. And he knew the pressure that we feel. The coming of the kingdom, as I've already said, would not come without a great personal cost to Jesus. Great personal cost. He was acutely aware of it. In Luke 12, 50, here's what he said to his disciples. He said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And he wasn't talking about when he was baptized by John the Baptist. What he was talking about was the crucifixion on the cross. And, and he says, how great is my distress. Jesus was distressed until it is accomplished. Did Jesus wrestle with the heaviness of life? Yes, he did. I don't think Jesus suffered from anxiety because I think he always kept his eyes on, on the things above. But that didn't mean that life was easy and that there was nothing hard that he had to struggle with. He says great distress. When we get to the, the Garden of Eden, or I'm sorry, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, the opposite of the Garden of Eden. When we get to that garden, when Jesus is wrestling in prayer with the Father and saying, Lord, if there is any way to let this cup pass from me, he's sweating drops of blood. He was under serious pressure. He knew what this was like. And then when we get to chapter 13, what Jesus says is, look, I know that you're going to wrestle with some of this struggle. I want you to keep your eyes on eternity. And, and he says, I don't want you to be overwhelmed. Instead, I want you to be encouraged. And that's where chapter 13 comes in. And what he says is, he says, be reminded that the kingdom, the kingdom in you, the work of God in you starts small and it grows. It starts small and it grows in our hearts. And that's what we should pursue, steady growth and health. Um, when, when my family and I uh, usually once a summer, we go out to visit my parents and my sister who live in Tennessee. And one of the things that we like to do as a family is we go back there and hang out with them. And then we go up to uh, Kentucky which is north of Tennessee, if you don't know that part of the world. Um, and we go up to this little property on a lake, a little, little lake up in Kentucky where my grandparents used to live. They're both with Jesus now, dead and gone. Um, but my, my family still owns that little piece of property. And right out in the, the backyard of that house, there's, there's a, a tree that my grandfather planted. And my dad told me the story of this. I didn't know this until recently, that that particular tree that my grandfather planted there, he got it um, from an Arbor Day in the 1980s where they passed out these little sticks. He said it was about the size of a pencil, a little seedling tree that he, he went into the backyard and he planted this tree. Well, if you go there today, this tree is no longer just a little seedling. This is in the 1980s when he planted this tree. 
right? It was a, a tulip poplar tree, which grow really fast. And you go into the backyard there, this little tree that was a little pencil is now a hundred foot tree. It's taller than the, the ceiling in here, all right? This giant tree. And it's kind of mind blowing because you're like, my grandpa planted that thing. And here it is. I can come and look at this tree in this backyard that's grown. Jesus says, that's what our faith is supposed to be like. He says, the sooner that you plant it, the better. And realize though, that there's going to be growth. There's gonna be seasons. He describes it as a mustard tree. And he says, a little mustard seed is planted and then it grows into this tree that provides shade and a place for the birds to land. This is what our faith is. This is how it is. And so sometimes we get overwhelmed even when we hear all these things. We're like, okay, Jesus says I'm supposed to keep my eyes on eternity. I'm not supposed to worry about the cares of the world, but oh, that's hard to do. And so now I'm actually worried about not keeping my eyes worried on this. But then I try to step into the things that God has for me, but it feels too slow or I don't feel like I'm growing or what's happening, ah! And he says, no, be encouraged. Take a deep breath. I'm at work in you and I'm gonna grow you where you need to go. Pursue that steady growth and health. As Jesus says in Luke 13, 24, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. And here's what we find. Not many will follow Jesus because the cost is high. But Jesus says it's worth it. And so then we come to chapter 14 and we see the contrast between those who choose to follow the things of God and those who choose to make their own way on this earth. They choose the kingdom of earth. There's a contrast here. And Jesus is, in, as chapter 14 begins, he's challenging these spiritual leaders in the community. He's calling their traditions into question, but he's also calling them to reconsider why they did the things that they did. Jesus came to seek and to save, including those leaders who were lost. They thought they were on the right track, but they were lost. In fact, Jesus tells a story depicting them as those who were invited to a party, but, just, but said, oh, we don't need that party. We're gonna decline, we're not coming. Jesus says, that's not who you wanna be. And he challenges those who would listen in, in verse 25 of chapter 14. And this is where we're gonna focus in. I know you feel like, oh, I just heard a sermon, I'm done. Well, no, you're not, here we go. Open up and read with me in your Bibles, Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 33. Here's what it says. It says, now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa. Doesn't sound like Jesus. Keep, keep listening. He says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has 
cannot be my disciple. Now, I picked this section today because obviously it's the most fun section to talk about. (laughs) No, actually I picked it because I think it sums up the section well, but also it's probably the most difficult part to process. This is actually one of the hardest teachings that Jesus gives in the Bible. When Jesus says to you, look, you've got to renounce everything if you want to be my disciple. And if you're not hearing me yet, what I'm saying is you've got to hate your mom, <laughs> hate your wife, hate your spouse, hate your kids in comparison to what it means to follow after me. This is heavy. It's not an easy thing that Jesus is calling us to, but we can't just kind of wish it away and explain it away. When he says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, Jesus is being serious. Now we know that Jesus has invited us to follow him. He came to seek and to save. And how does he start salvation? He says, look, God's provided a way for you. Receive the gospel and come and follow me. That's an invitation that he gives to everyone. And he tells us that eternal life waits for those who would follow him. And when he's popular, when Jesus is going around preaching these inspiring messages and, he, and he's healing all the people that are sick and he's casting out the demons, that all sounds great. You're like, okay, Jesus, I'll do that. If you're gonna let me cruise around with you and see what you see and do what you do and everybody, the crowds gather and you're feeding 5,000 with a couple of fish. This is amazing. This is great. I want that. Sign me up. Everybody wants to be involved in that. But what happens when the cost actually sinks in. Let me ask you this. Have you ever experienced buyer's regret? Have you ever bought something that afterwards you're like, I shouldn't have done that. I've got a buyer's regret story. Early, long time ago when after Aaron and I were, were, hadn't been married that long, we'd moved into our our first little condo and um, I came home from work one day and there was this guy at the house in the middle of this vacuum cleaner demonstration in my house with my wife, okay? And I walk in and this guy, if I won't mention any brand names of what this is. If those of you have experienced it, you know, you know. <laughs> but they come in and they blow your mind, okay? If you need a vacuum cleaner and this guy comes to your door, you're in trouble because they know what they're doing. And they come in and they find a little piece of your carpet and they're like, okay, get out your vacuum cleaner and you vacuum that spot and you do your very best with your vacuum cleaner and do everything that you would normally do. And then I'm going to show you my vacuum cleaner, right? And they do, they let you vacuum at first and then they pull theirs out and they put a little clean white thing under it. And then they one little swipe across the carpet you just vacuumed. And then they pull this thing out and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm a filthy rat. (laughs) How do I live in this mess? And then if you're not already sold, then they're like, and by the way, this also comes with this attachment that does this and it does that and it does this. And and there's all these things and you're you're just like, I've got to have it. I must have this vacuum cleaner. And that's my gullible wife and I, (laughs) me gullible. We're sitting there and we're like, yeah, we got to do it. Now they don't tell you yet up front how much this thing costs, right? Because you're thinking it's a vacuum cleaner. How much can a vacuum cleaner cost? But at this point, you're already sold. Like it doesn't matter what it's got. Kidney, okay, I'll give it to you. Let's do this. So my wife and I, we sign and we do what we need to do to get the vacuum cleaner. And later that night, he's gone. We have our new shiny vacuum cleaner. 
And we're like, what were we thinking? Do you know what we just paid for this vacuum cleaner? Do you know how little I make? (laughs) What are we doing here? And so after a restless night of sleep with buyer's regret, in the morning, Aaron and I are like, that's it, we're taking this thing back. We're not, we're not doing this. I don't even know what we're thinking. And, and by the way, just so you know, what I also did was I went on Craigslist that morning and I'm like, somebody else has this same buyer's regret and somebody's unloading one of these things cheap. Sure enough, I found one for a third of the price on Craigslist, loaded up the new one in the car, drove partway to Carlsbad, because that's how we had to take it to return the thing. Driving up, ended up buying another one, had two of them in my car at the same time, took the one back, gave the new one back to them and went home and felt pretty good about myself. We still have that vacuum cleaner. The point though, is not the vacuum cleaner. The point is the buyer's regret. The cost wasn't really counted by my wife and I as we were thinking about this vacuum cleaner. All we knew was, do we want a clean house? Yes. But can we afford that vacuum cleaner? No. We hadn't gone all the way through with it. All right, we hadn't thought through the whole process. And I've met Christians that are high pressure salespeople that try to talk you into salvation without, with just the list of benefits. But Jesus doesn't start that way. That's not how Jesus did it. When Jesus came and said, come and follow me, he also said, and I want you to know, as you follow me, there's a lot of cost involved. There's cost involved in following after me. And he brought the cost up front. Yes, the benefits are enormous, but there's great cost in this life. And and here's the first thing for you to process here today. If, If following Jesus hasn't cost you anything, you may not be following him at all. And I know that feels harsh to say, but it it may be true. It may be true. And here's a truth about faith. Everyone can afford it, but not everyone will accept it. Because we're not talking about a dollar amount here. God has given each one of us the ability to choose to follow him or not. Won't cost you a penny up front. He may call you to do things with your money later that you wouldn't normally do, but it's not about finances. Everyone can afford faith because we've all been given that freely, equally. doesn't matter if you're Bill Gates or you're an orphan in Malawi. Everyone can afford faith, but not everyone will accept it because the cost is too high. And when you read that verse in verse 26, when he talks about hating the people that you should love, he doesn't mean that literally. You know, hey, become a Christian and hate your mom. That's not what what Jesus says. In fact, Jesus, we know, calls us to abundant love, right? He even tells us, love your enemies. Not only do you love the people that you love, but love those that are hard to love. But he's describing the cost. What Jesus tells us here in this passage is that we are to choose him above everything else. And when he says you're even supposed to hate your own life, He's not saying you're supposed to become suicidal to follow him. No, what he's saying is hating my own life is hating my way, my will, my wants, my mastery of my world, doing my thing and, and myself. And what he's doing is he's getting at the depth of discipleship. We're called to be disciples that's what, that, that's what we are called to. We're called to become disciples and to make disciples. So what does it actually cost to become a Jesus follower, a true disciple of Jesus? 
He tells us right there. It costs everything. I don't want to lead you on some fake, false Christianity. What it really costs to become a disciple of Jesus is to truly give your life completely in surrender over to God. We lay down our lives as he laid down his life for us. In a parallel passage in Matthew 16, 24 and 25, says this, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, become a disciple, follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, meaning you wanna hold on to your own thing, do your own thing, he'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, true life. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. This is not a normal, okay, that's easy, no problem. Jesus says, just lay down my life and I'll find life. It doesn't make sense because our senses are broken. It's difficult for us to surrender our control over our lives because we don't realize that we actually don't have control of ourselves. Sin controls us. Jesus said in John 8, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We like to think that we've got control of our world. But in fact, if we're still under the power of sin, and if you're not following Jesus, you're under the power of sin. If you're under the power of sin, you're actually, you made without even knowing it, you're a slave to that sin. That's what's driving you. You think it's your free will. No, it's not. It's your sinful desires. That's what's actually driving you. And when our minds are set on ourselves, what the Bible calls our flesh, we think we're free, but we're not. In Romans 8, 7, and 8, it says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It can't be done. We think we're free. We think we're remaining independent, but we're actually controlled by sin. In Romans 6, he says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't need to be holy or want to be holy. There's no reason. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, This is the good news for those of you who are Christians here today. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And here's the verse that we all know very well. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a great cost in following Jesus, but a far greater reward the things you think you're holding on to that are gonna give you life and give you peace and joy and will fulfill you, if it's all on this earth and in this planet, it's gonna leave you empty at the end. And what Jesus offers is something far beyond that, far beyond it. As we finish here today, what is it then that Jesus is calling us to? We see it multiple times in that passage, three times. Jesus calls us to come and follow him. And what's he calling us to? We're called to become disciples. What's a disciple? A disciple is is one that has learned from him, but also strives to live like him. Both those parts matter. 
you learn about the ways of Jesus, but also you try to live like Jesus lived. And here's the the tricky part with this, and this is where a lot of Christians get stuck. I've been stuck in my Christian life in this a lot. There is no comfortable middle ground between this. There's not a halfway disciple, a partial disciple of Jesus. You can't just only learn about Jesus and be content right there. You have to try to live it. And when you only try to learn about it, you're gonna have a bunch of head knowledge about God, but it's not gonna impact your life. And there isn't a middle ground. And a lot of people like that. They like the idea of Jesus. They like to learn about him. Uh, They preach about him. They teach about him. They follow his teachings, but that's not living like him. Do you realize you can revere Jesus? You can admire Jesus. You can even honor Jesus and not be a disciple of Jesus. God is gracious, he's patient, he's merciful, but he calls us to follow. This is an illustration that I I know you guys have, many of you have heard before, but I'm gonna give it to you anyway. Have you ever heard about um, some of the ways that that people who live in countries that have monkeys (laughs) try to catch monkeys, monkey traps? They they will take a a gourd or a a coconut or a, a log and they'll hollow out the inside of this thing. And then they make a a small hole that's just small enough for a monkey to reach its hand into, all right? And and then what they do is they put inside that hollowed out thing something that the monkey wants, food, all right? And there's a couple things to know about monkeys. They're always curious and they're always hungry. (laughs) And so they put food in this hole. And what a monkey does is a monkey reaches its hand in and when it sees it, smells the food or whatever, it sees the food, it grabs the food. But the problem is the hole is so small that the monkey can't get its fist back out of the hole. So you take this this gourd and you tie it to a tree and you drill the hole and you put the food in, the monkey reaches in, grabs the food, but it can't get its hand out. But the monkey's hungry and the monkey doesn't wanna let go of the food. So the monkey's gonna continue to hold onto the food to its detriment because then a person can walk right up and grab the monkey, (laughs) all right? Because he won't let go of the food. It wants its freedom, it wants its food, and it can't pick between the two. It's stuck in the monkey trap. And and that's what happens with us. We say, oh, I love Jesus. I think Jesus is great. I think he had a great idea for the world. But I also wanna do things the way I wanna do things. I wanna live how I wanna live. I wanna do what I wanna do. I wanna make it all about me while I'm here. But yeah, the Jesus guy is great. Oh, it's good. Guys, you're not getting both. You're getting one or the other. And it's not that, it's not like a monkey trap where Jesus is trying to withhold something from us. Oh, you're not getting any food for me. That's not what it's, what's happening. The two worlds are incompatible. There can only be one Lord in your life. It might be the Lord, the Lord, or it could be a variety of lesser Lords. Matthew 16, Jesus says this, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, this earth, this planet, and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So how do we we finish? How do we process? How do we think through this? Well, let me just ask you this. What is keeping you from following the Lord with your whole heart? What is it? Is there anything that's keeping you from truly throwing yourself into becoming a disciple of Jesus? And and you also have to ask yourself this question first, I guess. 
are you actually a disciple of Jesus? Are you both learning his ways and trying to live like he lived? Jesus came to seek and to save. His life culminated in his death on the cross. He calls us to follow him and to follow him to death. He's not calling us to go and do what he did on the cross, not a physical cross, but by dying to sin, death to sin, that he can raise us to new life. And here's the the honest truth here today. Not all of us are at that spot. We're not. Not all of us are truly on that path of discipleship. Some of us uh, never even knew that there was a cost to following Jesus. You got one of those other Jesus salesmen that just said, it's great. You'll be healthy. You'll be wealthy. You'll be rich. You'll never be sick again a day in your life. Just come and follow Jesus. No, there is a cost. And for some people, they think that God would just bless their way of life, not replace their way of life. So the call for you here today is to lay your life down. Then there's others of us that we're caught in the middle. We're the, we're the ones in the monkey trap. <laughs> we want the things of God. We want to be a disciple, but we also still really want some of these other things of earth. We don't want to surrender those. The call to you today would be to surrender those things, release those things to God. It's not easy. And there's some of those things that you may be holding on to. You're like, I would love to drop that thing, but I can't do it. Well, God still works miracles in those ways. And he can free you and give you freedom from those things that are holding you back. And my prayer for all of us is that today would be a day that we've truly counted the cost of becoming a disciple of Jesus and that we would choose that path that he has for our lives. Let's pray together. God, I know that this is a message that is hard for us to hear. And it confronts us. And that's exactly what you did, Jesus, when you spoke those words that we studied here today. And you want us to know honestly that there is a true cost in following you. Yet you also want us to know without question that the reward is worth it. You tell us that you came to give us life, life to the full, abundant life. The word tells us that you show us the paths of life. And Lord, as we see that path today, Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to follow it. It's hard to let go of the things that have a hold on us. But God, we ask that you would allow us to truly free be free from those things, to to release those things. I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. If there are any here today that are struggling with addiction in some way, I pray God that you would free them from that, that you would allow them, allow their minds to let go of those attachments and that you would cleanse them. You tell us in your word, when we confess our sins to you, that you are righteous and faithful and forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from that unrighteousness. So Lord, I pray that you would set people free here today. 
Maybe there are some here today that do not know you and have never known you. And this is news to them that you came to seek and to save. And maybe you are knocking on their hearts today, calling them into a relationship with you, offering them the free gift of salvation. You're just asking them to surrender. And I pray that they would be able to make that choice and to come to know you and have their lives transformed by your Holy Spirit. You are our creator. You are our sustainer. You are the giver of life. You have designed us a particular way and sin has separated us from that. But you're here to restore and to redeem and renew us. So I pray that you would do that. And Lord, wherever we are here today, I just pray, God, that that you would minister to our hearts. Lord, we want to give you glory. We want to give you honor. We want to truly be disciples that not just learn about you, but live as you lived. We want to be the salt and the light of the earth. We want to be those that are overflowing with joy that comes from knowing you and living with you. Make us those people, Lord. May we be a church that is overflowing with the peace and the goodness and the love of Jesus as we go into the world around us. May we be your hands and your feet as we're ministering to those around us, as we're engaging with the world around us. We can only do that, Lord, with your resources and your ability. And so I pray, God, that you would enable us to do that very thing. Encourage us, we pray. And may we live life, even in this week, going ahead in a new way as disciples that have counted the cost. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen.